Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. such a relief to be able to sit still and open up the pores and the ears and the mind so that we can take in what's actually happening moment to moment to moment without superimposing everything we need each moment to be or superimposing on each moment a self that this experience has to refer to. So just even now to just listen to sound without having to make up your mind. Imagine if you could cultivate the practice to the point that you could actually listen to other people without having to make up your mind while you're listening. Imagine if there was like a movement called free listening, just like free speech, where people are actually um, cultivating the ability to listen freely, to create the conditions of equality. And there were like protests around, you know, institutions that weren't listening, where people would just like do a listen in (laughs) and just sit around and listen. So tonight is our last evening here within these four walls and then we're moving next week to Parkdale Mm -hmm. South and um, one of the things that came to my mind as we were sitting here listening is um, the sound of the temple next door and the way over the past few years we've uh, participated in the life of the temple. Many of you here have practiced Grant and Christiane and John and um, Sarah. Sarah? No, you haven't. Mm-hmm. Ronit. I'm keeping track. <laughs> and also been able to join in the life of the temple. And, um, but also listening to how uh, equal to the sound of the temple are the sounds of living in the alley and also the sounds of households. And um, several years ago, I decided to stop teaching in commercial yoga studios. And um, 
I had this intuition that it's possible to be able to do this practice uh, not in a commercial yoga studio, not in a temple, um, but somewhere in between, where we could somehow bring together a committed, dedicated practice um, with just enough form that we can um, check up on each other to make sure the practice is actually working. And now, several years later, it's so nice to see um, how the practice is coming together in your lives as I've gotten to know you and seen how the practice is expressed for some of you, sharing these teachings uh, with your children, um, some of you in prisons, uh, in schools, um, some of you working with homeless and hospices, some of you whose path is less extroverted. Um, uh, Ronit, wonderful writing. And um, John, the best poster, the missing piece that I've ever seen advertising anything. Um, for some of you making music, Tessa last week, the, you can find it on YouTube. Is it still up? Yeah, an amazing um, stop motion. motion film of the Heart Sutra. Mm. Um, and um, to start to understand that the practice, these practices of sitting meditation and pranayama and asana are not private experiences. Um, yoga is set forth, it's put in motion just like it said here, the, the Prajna Paramita Heart Sutra is set forth when we take action. And so yoga is not passed down through um, books published by Shambhala. <laughs> yoga is actually passed down through the expression of who you are and what you are and how you are with your children and with your parents and with your friends. And that's one of the reasons why we have a sangha that expands um, without advertising. So that somebody sees in you that something's changing or something's working. Or when you're on your knees and you feel like you need support. Um, a parent passes away and you feel like one of the things you want to do to support yourself is to come into this building. You lose a job, a marriage falls apart. Whatever happens, that you start to notice that within loss, space is created for you to be supported, that there's a net there. There's a net there. And that there can be a net there without hierarchy. There can be a net there where the net is about equality. But I recognize that what transcendence might mean is that it can be horizontal. So that my responsibility to awakening is to create space for you to also live a life where you feel fully alive. <coughs> and we're doing this for each other just by showing up and doing this practice.
and learning how to work with your potential for anger and your potential for greed and hatred and confusion so that as you work with that potential you're supporting other people we're supporting each other and then this becomes an art practice because it has everything to do with you facing the blankness or the blank parts of your life where there's no um, intelligence or vitality. Ernest Hemingway says, the horror of a blank piece of paper. The horror of a blank piece of paper. For those of you who write, you know this. Well, I guess it's a blank screen now. You look at a blank piece of paper and you have a responsibility to organize words on a page in a way nobody in the history of this language has organized them. <clears throat> if you paint, you know, how can you paint a painting on a canvas with the history of painting behind you? And yet you make a commitment to that activity. Just like the meditator who sits still and opens up to stillness, opens up to the horror of the blank piece of paper, to the blankness underneath all of our self-representations, our self-imaginings, and actually to open up to who you really are, who you are free of who you think you are, and how much spontaneity and aliveness is there underneath our fear of actually being ourselves. And so in the Heart Sutra, we've been exploring now for three weeks the same two lines. Chitta avarana, the, the walls of the mind, that the bodhisattva lives um, without walls of the mind and therefore without fear. And uh, in the Buddhist framework that this yogic uh, paramita comes out of, there are th actually three walls of the mind, three forms of citta avarana. The first one is uh, karma avarana, which is the momentum of previous actions that move through our lives. All the different conditions of 12 billion years that transpire to configure this unrepeatable matrix that we call I, me, and mine. And that all of that momentum has uh, seeds that are positive and also seeds that are unhelpful. And the walls in our mind are created by these seeds and the actions that we take. But the karma is not yours. You don't have karma. Karma is not something you have, it's something you are. You are karma. Action, and the effect of action. Which is why I like to think of karma as creativity. Which basically means, what are you going to do with what you've got? Here's what you've got, what are you going to do? You've got a blank piece of paper, what are you going to do? And for anyone who's worked with a blank piece of paper, you know that is not a blank piece of paper. Because as the subject meets the paper, you're bringing that whole history of whatever your art form is 
to that piece of paper. You look at, it's the time of year now, you look at soil. How am I going to plant this soil? Sarah, do you do this? It's like, and there's a kind of horror and an excitement at the same time. And you can't just sit there with your coffee for days on end deciding what you're... You have to actually get out there and start. So what are you going to do with what you've got? And that's why when people, you know, many of you in this room, sometimes, you know, in your daily practice, you have these experiences where there's stillness, or some of you email me, oh, I had this experience, you know. And then it's fascinating, but what's more fascinating is what you're actually going to do with your insight, how you're going to put it to work in your household, with your kids with your enemies. Or Patabi Joy says, with your yenemies. <laughs> so the Bodhisattva takes refuge in this experience without resting in the walls of the mind. Second wall of the mind is the kleshas. So these are all the hindrances that begin with um, not actually seeing how things actually are or being with how things are. Like, for example, is it possible to just listen to sound and leave it as sound without picking it up and having to focus on the source of the sound, whether you like the sound or not? I gave some of you a practice a few weeks ago, which is in relationship listening for five minutes longer. Listening for five minutes longer. And to just see where the walls of the mind come up. It's fascinating. All the way to Abhinivesha, the fear of letting go of all of the vrittis, all of the self-imaginations, that constrict our ability to open up to how things are. And then the third wall of the mind, Nea, which is the um, you know, in some ways you can translate it as like every possible predisposition that you have. Like so many of our patterns of suffering are not so personal, you know. They're, they're knots in us that are um, as much cultural and economic and uh, have sometimes more to do with capitalism than with your parents, you know. We're living at a time where we're really caught in the myth of the family, where like most of your neuroses are caused by your mother and father. But like in most cultures, you know, if there's something going wrong in your relationship, you don't analyze your parents. You know, maybe it's a way you planted the heart, you know, planted your seeds. Maybe you missed the full moon. Maybe it has to do with the water levels in your community. The first movement is not towards your childhood. 
So to also recognize that the walls and the mind-body, the places where we're stuck, or the places where there's too much prana flowing, have not just to do, are patterns that are not just about your personal life. And to recognize that. We're all caught in the vice of culture, because it's imperfect, and it always will be by definition. And just to be able to face the blankness of the page. At the end of the exhale, the breath bottoms out, and there's a pause where the tongue is released, where the eyes become receptive, and in that pause, when the pelvic floor is toned, before the inhale shows up, there's a slight retention, which isn't really a retention. It's called a retention, but it's really like a pause or a rest in a bar of music, where there's a small pause where it's a moment before the inhale arises. And in that, in that mula, in that root, the khanda is ignited, the bulb behind the navel is woken up. Just like in springtime, the winter ends, and we don't know exactly when spring starts. I mean, you know, we have a calendar and so on, but like you have to be pretty in tune to know when spring really starts. And so to know when the bulb has been awakened. And in the Heart Sutra, this is called uh, Sambodhi. Bodhi means awakened, and Sam means complete. Complete awakening. Complete awakening. And the paradox is that we're always completely awake. The paradox is that everything is already intimately yoked with everything else, so that you can't actually practice yoga. That's why some people say, I'm taking a yoga training. Or, I, or people, some even people say, I teach yoga. Have you ever heard this before? <laughs> I teach yoga. That's like saying, I teach intimacy. So those are the people I stay away from. You know? It's like a little bit inflated. Or some people even have the gall to say, I practice yoga. Have you ever heard this before? It's like, I practice intimacy. As if you can actually practice it. Do you ever have the feeling like we're doing so much practice, like, when's the show? You know, like, when do you actually get to do it? (laughs) So to understand that, like, you're already complete. You're already awakened. Yoga is not something you practice, that the technique is helping you undo. Ayama. Prana ayama. To unrestrain the prana. Not to restrain it to unrestrain the prana so that we can recognize and appreciate and, and express the inherent intimacy of all things. And then when there's loneliness and when there's fear, even within the loneliness and fear, there's a deeper ground, the ground of impermanence. And that also sounds like a paradox. If you split off from that, well, how can impermanence be a ground? But it's like water. Water is sustaining. Water is a ground. The ground flows. 
this ground is impermanent. Look at here we are this week and we're not going to be here next week. Here's this building and who knows if this building will be here in a century. But to be able to stand firmly and be sustained and nurtured by the fact that the ground is groundless, that everything is in flow, there's a deep security in that that sustains us like community does. When there's fear and when the walls of the mind are being constructed or deconstructed. There can just be there can be just as much fear in the construction of walls of the mind and deconstruction of walls of the mind. Well, I'm exaggerating the third wall of the mind as predispositions. Um, the word, usually it's really called delusion, which I like to translate as confusion. But sometimes when I say that the wall of the mind is delusion or confusion, it sounds so abstract, like somehow I'm personally confused. So I like to think of it more in terms of like cultural memory, kind of like the samskaras a little bit that um, like a lot of our confusion is not so personal it's, it's the confusion that comes because of like cultural osmosis you know and I think that too often um, we think about our we think about karmic patterns just as personal patterns and we we work so much on our personal patterns of greed and hatred and confusion, but we don't recognize the way we contribute to larger cultural and institutional patterns of confusion. And um, so to be technically accurate, the third wall of the mind is delusion. But to really understand delusion as a socio-cultural Psycho-physiological, capitalist, patriarchal, non-vegetarian um, violence, without defining it too tightly. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So, if you think of it in terms of like rotations and counter-rotations spirals and counter spirals um, that um, like in Trikonasana you know that the femur bone really needs to externally rotate to get the right sits bone under the left sits bone on the right side and um, the more that femur bone externally rotates the more that sits bone comes under its companion and then you have good tone in the PC muscle and then you have Mmm, that mmm feeling in the mouth. Mmm, so good. It's like, why do anything? Just like hang out there. Um, but the problem is, is like that only lasts for about 20 seconds. Because then that exhale finishes that external rotation and then the inhale shows up. And the inhale needs chest liftage. And so then we have to start counter-spiraling the femur bone 
so that the pubic bone can drop and then the heart can start to go, oh, I'm included in this. And then the heart starts to pull on the kanda, on the mulabandha. And um, so there's a rotation and then a counter-rotation. Oh, but then too much internal rotation and then your right sits bone sticks out again. It's a bit embarrassing. It's like you're in the middle of class and the right sits bone like hits your neighbor. And then the chest collapses again. And then you have this realization that there's actually no end point in the pose. Don't tell anybody this, but actually the pose doesn't end. And what happens is through the bones of the feet, you just keep dialing in the pose like you dial in a radio station. Does anyone do this anymore? Now it's just like you type in last FM or whatever, you know. But you used to dial in shortwave radio. And, um, and then it's like the pose is alive because it's dialed in in very subtle ways. And our life is like this. There are no universal principles of alignment. Don't tell anybody. And um, because of this, it means you have to tune in to the energy of each experience, moment by moment by moment. And by tuning in to what's actually happening moment by moment by moment by moment, we wake up. We wake up to the reality of this piece of paper. And this piece of paper is no longer blank. It's actually an opportunity to express our practice. And every day the body is different, and every moment your mind is different, even though sometimes it doesn't feel like that. It's like, oh my God, you wake up and go, oh my God, my mind. Like as if you had a mind that actually woke up with you in the morning that was permanent and unchanging. But at the end of the exhale, there's this pause, and there's like the mind just goes, ah. Oh. And that's why it said in Hatha Yoga Pradipika that Mulabandha, it, its, its main appetite is time. It loves eating time. So this is Shankaracharya's you know, favorite way of interpreting the Mulabandha is that it eats time. So at the end of the exhale, there's a pause, and in that pause, the mind is not creating something. And so it actually eats up time and space and self-image. And that's why when yoga teachers say, um, I know what Mulabandha is, you can kind of laugh and go, <coughs> um, some yoga teachers even go to yoga festivals and do workshops on Mulabandha. And people actually come, you know. But at the end of your exhale, by definition at the Mulabandha, there's no chitta vritti, so you can't actually know what it is. So if anybody tells you they know what Mulabandha is, you can kind of like just giggle a little bit, like out of compassion. <laughs> and this is our main practice as yogis and yoginis, is not knowing. Not knowing. And the best way to begin this practice is in the body. Because there's some things that your mind just can't know. Like, have you ever looked at a tree? Has anyone ever done this before? Like, look at a tree. Can you know anything about a tree? Really? This morning I made pancakes and um, had maple syrup. And it's mind-blowing that you can have maple syrup. How amazing is that? 
And no matter how much you know about maple syrup, like just the fact that you can have, like that comes out of a tree. Let's just contemplate that for 20 minutes. <laughs> or 20 seconds. Any other comments, concerns, questions that I can avoid? <laughs> like the last one. <laughs> Are you clear about the third one? Delusion, confusion? Delusion. Delusion. I love the word delusion. Sometimes it's translated as disenchantment. <coughs> and like, I love these words because delusion, it means the end of the illusion. The end of the illusion. Or disenchantment, like enough with the enchantment. So if you get too far into, oh my God, the maple tree is so sacred and like, let's not touch them. And, you know, then like you, you own no firewood. So the end of the... It's not to be enchanted by things. It's actually to be disappointed. Disappointment. For those of you that were in the um, five-day intensive that we had a couple weeks ago, the theme of the week was failure. All the ways that life has failed us. And to see that life hasn't failed you in any way. It's just we've been enchanted in all the wrong ways. So we've been caught in delusion because we're trying to live a life that is virtual, that's not connected to how things are. Disconnected. And it's so convenient to live disconnected because then we don't have to feel anything. It's so great. Any questions, thoughts? Opinions, delusions. <clears throat> Christian, I see one like question is coming. Well, I, I just actually felt really blessed with the meditation today, listening to the sound. Mm -hmm. I never listened to sound before I started meditating with you. It's a wonderful story about a student who goes to, uh, it's a Chinese story, a student who goes to um, a monk. It's in the Chan tradition. So the, the head teacher would actually sit on what's called the high seat. And uh, the high seat, for those of you who've ever studied the Chan tradition, is like really high. We wouldn't do that here. Really high. And uh, goes up to his teacher and looks up, probably up his nostrils, and uh, says, um, what is the core of this teaching? Have you ever felt like asking that question? What is actually the core of the teaching? It's a, it, it takes, I think, a fair amount of courage to go to your teacher and ask a question like this, but it also shows you're open. 
like you don't know anymore. So you can imagine, somebody who's working with a teacher who's on the high seat has probably been practicing a long time. And so let's just say that he's been practicing for 40 years. And then he goes to his teacher, Dai Wu, and says, what is the core of the teaching? And Dai Wu gets off the high seat, climbs down, and kneels beside him and says, I'm sorry that you've come so far. I have nothing to give you. I'm sorry you've come so far. I have nothing to give you. And this student wakes up. Wakes up. Because he's there asking a question. He's in that question and says, I'm sorry, I have nothing to give you. And don't we feel this way sometimes? It's like turning to a book, turning to a teacher, turning to something outside of yourself to say, what is the heart of my life? And how and where can I settle it? I don't know about you, but like, I want there to be an answer. And then all I get is like, the four of these, the eight of these, the six of these. (laughs) It's like, but what's the heart? What's the core? And it's great watching some of you get frustrated after years of practicing here, where it's like one day you realize, oh my God, there's no path being offered. And then you ask these like questions that seem kind of redundant, like, you know, is it okay if I practice Konasana after, you know, standing poses? Like, can I go straight into that? And then you have the super ego going, no, there's a lineage <laughs> that you have to follow. And then you find out that like the traditional sequence is 30 years old, you know. and then you get embarrassed because you've been calling yourself like classical (laughs) when really you're just colonial (laughs) or actually delusional (laughs) yeah so this is the point is that we keep looking like oh it's gotta be like in the bell or in the right kind of ritual the way I light the incense the way I chant the and we attend workshop after workshop. We attend... Um, does anybody remember the name for people who are addicted to workshops? Okay, don't say it as loud. And, uh, hi, Jorge. And, um, and we're looking outside of ourselves. What ap- what's appearing in your life right now is the path. So to know where you feel connected in your life right now and where you feel disconnected. To really know the places where you feel connected. A particular street corner, a particular flower bed, a particular person. There's a window I like to sit at. Um, Friday night, if you live in Parkdale, the best place to go there's a bison burger 
place that just opened on Brock. I don't eat Bisenberger, but they have onion rings. And I don't eat onion rings, but I just started. <laughs> and um, it's right next to the liquor store, which on a Friday night in Parkdale is like the most interesting place to be. And uh, I sat there last Friday night for three hours just watching people eating onion. I was eating onion rings just watching people with a friend. It's, I was glued to the scene. It was amazing. So, and when I'm there, I just I feel connected. I feel connected. Um, and also to notice where you feel disconnected. But at a more subtle level, to notice what parts of your life you illuminate and what parts of your life you're trying to darken. And to stop splitting things up so that the places that you're trying to darken a little bit can be included in your practice. And one of the reasons why we spend so much time here studying the eight limbs of yoga is so that we have enough tools in our toolbox so that when you start to bring in the different corners of your life, you've got technique to work with it. And if you can't find stillness and equanimity in the prana, in the chitta, then it becomes very hard to work with the illuminated and with the darkened parts of your life. And then you feel like there are parts of your life. It feels like your life is fragmented. And then you don't get the yoga, which is the inherent intimacy of every part of your life. And Sangha community helps us do that. Because there's a support that you know you're coming here to practice and that you're not being given a path. There's no membership. There's no robes. We don't even have class cards. You know? And so you, the practice is being handed back to you. There's no expert here. And I think the future of a healthy yoga is going to be this kind of flat. Uh, the, the image I have, and I don't know how to work with it yet because I don't know enough about computers, is open source. You know, Or like another way I think about it sometimes is like a soap opera. Because like when you watch soap operas, does anybody do this? It's like it's totally flat. It's totally flat and like the story is going on, but it doesn't go deep, and there's not really a high either. It's kind of just like, you know? It's like if you could measure it on one of those heart monitors, it'd just be like dead, you know? Um, but actually, like, I love the soap opera genre for thinking about how we learn together, which is open source, which is that there's a game we play which is I come to the front of the room and speak like this. But when you bow, you're not bowing to me. You're not bowing to the front of the room. Namaste is a negation. Na, na, no. No, not my name. And what's not me is acknowledging what's not you and you. 
And everything that's not my name is acknowledging everything that's not your name. So when I bow down, I'm bowing to everything. But it's not me bowing. It's everything bowing to itself. It's kind of like the holiest thing you can do at the Ganges is to actually take the water up and then give it back to the Ganges. Pour it back into itself. Or like Kuan Yin or Avalokiteshvara in the Heart Sutra, she takes her tears, which are salt water, and she gives them back to the ocean. Can you do that when you're crying? D.T. Suzuki is asked, you've practiced for so many years. When you cry, how is it different now than when you were young? And he says, well, when I cry now and my tears land, they don't grow roots. They don't grow roots. So when you're crying, that sadness is just the ocean moving through you. Pure sadness. You don't have to refer it back again to the story of your life. And then you can actually feel sadness, loneliness, grief, boredom, even joy. When you feel joy, the ocean comes through, these little ducts. Handing it back. So I'm handing this practice to you. I can't do it for you. And we can't do it for each other, but we're doing it because of each other. Again, karma is not something you have or something that happened to you. It's what you are. It's who you are. And so yoga is how you express yourself. And we've been studying the Heart Sutra because it's a direct, very clear expression of yogic insight, free of doctrine. And next week we're going to study the gate gate, gone, gone, beyond, gone, beyond, beyond, and beyond that too, and beyond that. And then your mind goes, oh, it's beyond that. No? <laughs> One time we were studying with Richard Freeman and someone said, oh, as I'm breathing I can really feel my heart. And he said, okay, now try and feel your breath in your heart, but try and feel the heart in your heart. And then the person a minute later said, okay, I can feel that. <laughs> and then he says, okay, now and try and feel the breath in the heart of your heart of your heart of your heart. And of course, this is one of those students who's like a literalist. I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> I can feel that. And it's like the same kind of student that's like, in triangle, is that supposed to be an internal rotation or an external rotation? And then, like, they fight with other students that, like, well, actually, Michael said it was an internal rotation. Without seeing all the gossip involved in that. So, thank you so much for those of you who've been coming here for days and months and years, who've contributed to making this a place where we can practice together in safety and we can practice together through hard times and also we can have fun together, even eat together. 
And some of you have spent a lot of time in this room. And amazing how the walls here have been able to hold our practice. But also, it's impermanent. And I had this idea that like, we would do a partner exercise tonight, and just to turn to a friend and tell them, you know, as a kind of completion or something, what, it's, what this place means to you. But then as the day went on, I thought, no. You know, because there's nothing here to hold on to. We're going to leave this room and we're going to start practicing next week in another room. And to focus on the practice, not on the form. And so not to deny the fact that, oh, there's feelings around completing something here. But at the same time, this room is not what creates awakening. It's not dependent on conditions. No walls of the mind. No clinging. And without clinging, there's freedom to be who you are, what you are. To recognize the inherent intimacy of life. And that groundlessness is actually what's supporting you. So let's finish chanting and then we can (coughs) drink. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs>